0: Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque, from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Jim Healy, director of programming for the Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. The Cinematheque's free series of view-at-home movies continues on October 15th with a double feature of Hollywood science fiction classics that were originally selected to play in the 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival. From 1972, Douglas Trumbull's *Silent Running*, and from 1957. The incredible shrinking man these two clever and thought-provoking gems are presented with the support of the Wisconsin Science Festival October 15th through the 18th beginning at 12 a.m. on Thursday October 15th the Cinematheque will present a virtual cinema engagement of the incredible shrinking man and silent running that you will be able to watch at home for free until midnight on Sunday October 18th to receive access Simply send an email to info at and make sure to include the word sci-fi, that's S-C-I-F-I, in the subject line. Silent Running is set in a future when all organic plant life has disappeared from Earth. A wild-eyed Bruce Dern plays Freeman Lowell, whose mission aboard the space vessel Valley Forge is to watch over the geodesic domes that protect and nourish the last remnants of trees and vegetation. Devastated when orders are given to destroy the forest, Lowell's impulsive reaction sends him, his plants, and three robotic drones named Huey, Dewey, and Louie hurtling toward Saturn. For a fun and digressive discussion on Silent Running, we invite you to listen to a new episode of another podcast, 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s, co-hosted by Mike McPadden and Cinematech programmer Ben Reiser. On this episode of Cinema Talk, Ben and I have a spoiler-filled talk about The Incredible Shrinking Man. In the movie, an everyman named Scott Carey, played by Grant Williams, discovers that he is suddenly shrinking in stature. At first, Scott's condition causes tension in his marriage. Then, he must contend with the media when he becomes a national curiosity. Soon, down to a tiny fraction of his former size, the title character finds himself in a strange new world fraught with danger that comes from previously harmless things around his house like his pet cat, a leaky water heater, and a basement spider. The clever, literate screenplay is by science fiction and fantasy giant Richard Matheson, adapting his own novel, and the talented Universal Pictures contract director Jack Arnold manages to deliver action-packed, ingeniously devised special effects sequences, while keeping a firm grip on Matheson's powerful existential subtext and awe-inspiring conclusion. Now here are Ben and I talking about The Incredible Shrinking Man. Ben, I mentioned to you just before we sat down to watch The Incredible Shrinking Man again that it was one of my favorite films. and I, I guess I didn't know your opinion of it. I know you had seen it before, but wondering what reaction you had to it this time.
1: I feel like I saw it many times as a kid, um, and but I can't remember the last time I watched it, and it, it's possible I haven't watched it and since since I was uh, preteen or teen. It was one, you know, it was one of those movies that was o- always on TV, um, either on the four thirty movie or
0: Channel Nine or Channel Eleven. Growing up in New York, interrupted by commercials, no doubt
1: absolutely interrupted by commercials um,
0: and, uh, and and this version we're sh- we're sharing um, this week is the you know the full 185 aspect ratio so you get to see all the special effects and the and the whole you know the the, the, the way the film was shown would have been shown in theaters when it came out which originally.
1: when we yeah when, when we were watching it that was actually the first big surprise was that it was in 185
0: well most of the major studios started using some form of widescreen whether that was a 1 1.85 aspect ratio or the cinemascope which is considerably wider 2.35 starting around 1953 by 1953 54 you know some filmmakers are working with you know still working with the academy the the more square aspect ratio um but the films are being you know matted and reformatted for theatrical release so you know they're cropping the tops and the bottoms of the, of the image um, to, to, to make a more widescreen image for theaters.
1: Was that the case with this movie? Do you think they shot it? No,
0: I don't think so. Um, but what's interesting is that is this movie's connection to Orson Welles, of which there are a few. Oh. Um, and uh, the very next year, the producer, Albert Zugsmith, uh, made Touch of Evil. And hired Orson Welles to direct that film because uh, Welles had just appeared in another Zug Smith production that, like Incredible Shrinking Man, was directed by Jack Arnold called Man in the Shadows, which we showed at the Cinematheque for Wells' Centennial. It's one of his best performances, but it's that film that led directly to his being offered the role in Touch of Evil and then through further influence, mostly on behalf of Charlton Heston, he's allowed to direct the film as well. Um, and in A Touch of Evil's case, uh, that's a film that's, uh, in terms of its aspect ratio, a lot of people have argued over. So, um, Wells, easily composed for the Academy ratio. When you you can, you can watch the film. I think the Blu-rays preserves both aspect ratios, um, and so a lot of people argue that that's, that's the one to watch. But when it was shown in theaters, it was cropped and masked for uh, 185, which took off the tops and bottoms of of uh, Wells' image. Right. Um, Wells and, and the cinematographer, Russell Metty, I should say. Yeah. So the other uh, Wells connection is um, the trailers, the original trailers for Incredible Shrinking Man have Orson Welles' narration where – he doesn't do the full narration for the trailer. There's another professional announcer, but at some point they cut in Wells's voice saying, you know, what a magnificent movie this is, you know, come and watch the journey of Scott Carey or something like that. Maybe you can find that and splice that in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, Um,
1: I didn't answer your question though. I, I I loved it. I I mean, I I remember enjoying it as a kid, but in the way that I enjoyed most movies that I saw, you know, but watching it uh, last week, Um, I I was, I was totally taken in by it and I was, I had forgotten that it was, um, that it was based on a Richard Matheson, uh, story or novel.
0: Actually, I don't know. It's a a novel. Uh, it's a novel. I just, I just finished it. Um, it's, it's a very good novel.
1: Well, Um, that he was my, you know, he's, he's one of these guys who I feel like I knew his name as soon as I knew anyone's name. And that I was, and I'm sure, sh- and I would have to say it's based on both watching the Twilight Zone, of which you wrote a number of episodes, so some of my favorite.
0: Mo- most episodes. of the I, I was just looking it up. It, almost all of the great Twilight Zone episodes are written by Richard yeah. Matheson.
1: So there, so there was that. That was how I knew his name and knew him as a writer, and thought, "Oh, this is the best writer ever." I'm, I'm sure I had that thought as a kid. Like Richard Matheson is the guy. You know, even before I knew about Stephen King. Uh, and started reading him, Richard, and not that I read, I'm sure I read some Richard Matheson short stories. I don't think I ever read um, I Am Legend or, uh, or, or Shrinking Man. Um, but the, but that was the other thing. I saw Omega Man uh, at a really young age. And, um, and I don't know what kind of screen credit he gets for that. I guess just probably based on a novel by.
0: Yeah, it's possible they don't mention the title "I Am Legend," but I think it says, "Yeah, based on a novel by Richard Matheson." So that, that's and that's actually, you know, this that's the second version of
1: "Yes, I Am Legend." Right? I've never been able to make it through the Vincent Price "Last Man." On oh, Earth. I like it a lot. Yeah, I, I need. I'm a I, big fan. I haven't revisited it again since I was probably you know a teenager, but at that point, I had seen Omega Man, and it it really like burned itself in my brain. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so because, you know, Charlton Heston, as I've talked about on various podcasts, uh, you know, was was a hero of mine because of his involvement with Planet of the Apes. And so um, uh, I, I, I was really young when I saw Omega Man. I, I think I, saw, I must have seen it on TV and I feel like I saw it at my grandparents' house uh, and I just was was captivated by it. And so. Um, yeah R- Richard Matheson between that and duel, which I also saw at an early at a young age. Uh, um, yeah so so I was excited to realize his connection t- to this and then I just I, I, I was I was fascinated by it and I was really really taken in and impressed by. You know all the visual effects and and lots of other aspects of it too. But uh, how did you how did you when did you first see it and how did it become one of your favorite? Movies?
0: Same as you, I think it was a, you know it was a TV staple it was a movie you, you were always aware of. I'm pretty sure there was a condensed. Well, I know that there was a condensed Super Eight right home version, yeah. and I'm pretty sure I would have checked it out of the uh, library when I was growing up because they had those things you could check out and i had a projector without sound so i would have watched it without sound i know i saw tarantula which is kind of this is uh which is kind of the sister film to incredible shrinking man made just before the year before by the same director uh, jack arnold um and uh so i'd seen it several times you know part of part of kind of um Growing up with this movie uh, meant ki- meant having to de- deal with the attitudes that it was a you know a cheesy movie or a you know a goofy movie, and that was never more uh, emphasized than in a film called It Came from Hollywood, which was uh, more or less the movie version of the Golden Turkey Awards book that has a whole section where Cheech and Chong talk about. Uh, movies about giants and miniaturized people. Yeah, and 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 it includes the Incredible Shrinking Man amongst some legitimately bad and cheesy movies like uh, Amazing Colossal Man and Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman and things like that. But it, you know, it's got uh, Cheech and Chong making jokes about Incredible Shrinking Man, and it's 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 a movie that already has a, a sense of humor about itself. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's unnecessary, (laughs) but it's also, um, uh, I think just a much more, much more serious film, which comes from, uh, both a, a cinematic tradition and a literary tradition that, um, maybe, maybe a couple different kinds of cinematic and literary traditions. One that's maybe more serious than another, you know?
1: Well, it you know not not to jump straight to the end, but it's got such a dark and ambiguous ending, um, which I really think separates it from a lot of those sort of cheesier fifties sci-fi. You know, e- even something which I think is great like them. Uh, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't end. It, this this is kind of like a film noir, but with this sort of fantastical element to it.
0: Um, it's interesting I, I, I see the ending you know, and I, I guess we should warn about spoilers here i I guess you already have yeah <laughs> I see the ending as very hopeful huh. um and and it's interesting to compare the ending of the book to the ending of the movie which are which are very similar, you know, Scott's in the same place he's in, but the book ends with um a much less kind of uh spiritual and more practical and almost more sci-fi type attitude uh with with Scott realizing that uh his you know his size um isn't you know isn't uh, the the size of his imagination isn't shrinking and the size of his intelligence isn't shrinking so he so he says Uh, Quote, if nature existed on endless levels, so also might intelligence. So he realizes he's going to be he's 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 not going to shrink into um, or he realizes he's going to shrink into infinity, but continue to shrink. Whereas in the novel, in the also in the novel, he has a kind of he has a kind of what he thinks is a timeline that's going to expire. He loses a seventh of an inch a day. So he loses an inch. Of his height per week, and so the events of the novel, uh, which is kind of jumbled around in time, in the end take place over about a year, a little more than a year, and uh, he th- he th- he thinks when he's down in the basement and battling the spider that he's only got a matter of days before he just evaporates. But that's that's not what happens. He just starts to, you know, go down exponentially beyond yeah you know v- beyond visibility I guess and so what he's thinking at the end is that is that if there are d- these different planes of different dimensions that he's going to encounter that can't be seen with the human eye that he might come across some other form of intelligence that he can communicate with and 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 sees it that way mm-hmm. and but Matt Matheson didn't like the ending of the film at first I think he s- said years later you know he 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 thought it was it was. That the narration was too spiritual, hmm. um, which and apparently the narration was rewritten by Jack Arnold, and it does have a kind of quasi-spiritual dimension, but really it's more existential. It's just, yeah, you know, affirming and confirming his existence. He's still here. I still exist. <laughs>
1: Well, as a kid, for me, grappling with those kind of existential issues and just the whole concept of him shrinking into sort of this subatomic particle size and this vast, you know, that he's, you know, it it was a surprise ending for me as a kid that that he was not going to be cured, that he wasn't going to stop shrinking and then reverse the process, which I feel like, you know, most other films, most other films, that I'd seen up until that point and, and seen since, you know, either either this person going through this transformation, also that, that transformation also turns them into some kind of a sociopath, like the Invisible Man. And so you know that the end is coming for them, like that they're going
0: to get there. Or Jeff Goldblum and the Fly. Yes,
1: or Jeff Goldblum yeah. and the Fly, absolutely. Uh, although, interestingly, not really the original Fly. Like, he doesn't, right? There, there, he, there's no sort of sinister... Um, personality no, I, affect. I, I'd
0: have to see it again, but the yeah, the 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 human with the fly's head communicates through writing and and at at, at some point. And I don't think he get, he has like delusions of grandeur or anything like that. He's just trying to yeah figure out a way to reverse the process, which which doesn't happen. Right. But,
1: well, uh, and 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 right. And then that that also has sort of that's another sort of unhappy ending where he right does absolutely he,
0: yeah. well. And they find they find the other creature which is you know more or less an insect with a human head and they have to destroy that but it's but, actually uh, sort of the
1: reverse in in incredible shrinking man where i you know i find him to be uh what, and what's the character's first name um scott robert scott robert scott right and but they call yeah, him everybody scott. calls him scott right that's right but he's he starts off as a bit of a jerk and he's got sort of a kind of a you know he, he's kind of nasty to his wife on that boat trying to get her to get, bring him a beer and you
0: know, well that's that that's kind of the novel in a nutshell. And, and the and the film too, I think, which which plays down the the male-female relationships a little bit, but in it but in its own kind of cinematic way, which and for nineteen fifty-seven, which couldn't go into, you know, more specific. But in in the book Although it stop- does have
1: that one uh monologue, interior monologue, where he's sitting on the couch and he's already shrunk a bunch. He's talking about how much he still wants her. And how much he's desiring her and how much he wants, you know, that's, that's that's pretty, you know, that's a pretty heavy uh, dose of sexual uh, desire and uh, to to have been articulated that way,
0: I think. It's there and it's, and it's all more explicit in the book too, Mm. Uh, you know, and he, he consummates his affair with Clarice, the little Uh. person. Um, And that's after being, you know, after realizing he's shrinking Trying to, uh, spending a summer trying to seduce the babysitter because they have a child in the book. Oh, okay. Um, which explains the dollhouse, which is not explained in the, why, right. they, why these grown couple would have a dollhouse in the movie. But it's really, Scott's biggest frustrations are ones of inadequacy he feels uh, as a man in, in relationship to his relationships with women. And and that's where his rage... Comes. And, it's, and the rage just keeps on coming mm-hmm. all the way through this, the part of the book where he's trapped in the basement and, and fighting off the spider. He still is grappling with these, you know, feelings of inadequacy. And he's humiliated in other ways, too, uh, that aren't in the film. He uh, gets uh, tormented by a gang of... Um, teenage maybe not even teenage just you know preteen bullies um who tease him and beat him up because they think he's another kid one night and then they realize who he is and they torment him even more because he's a media star at that point uh and then he the most shocking chapter is he uh, mistaken for a 12 year old child gets picked up by a child molester oh my gosh who uh, uh, <laughs> you know Scott is able to, you know, fend off his advances and get out of the car. Um but it's a it's a really unsettling and and creepy part of the book. Wow. Um and so and so that, you know, all underlines the fact that he, you know, his where his inadequ, where his feelings of inadequacy that he's he's, you know, sh- shrinking in his own universe, but most especially in his yeah, you know in his masculinity.
1: Yeah, you know? but you know, I, but I was going I was trying to say that in the film, it feels like it's almost like a journey of redemption, like that. As he gets smaller, he sort of sheds some of that, you know, narcissism and um, uh, aggression and unpleasantness, and becomes, uh, I think, a better man. Um,
0: yeah, and he does that through a struggle with basic survival, uh, fighting against you know the basic elements, you know. Which you know it might might be uh you know to a to a full grown person you know seem ridiculous D- drops of water coming from the leaky water heater yeah. and and a spider um which i, I I'm, is no common <laughs> basement spider uh in fact it's played by the same tarantula from tarantula ah specially trained specially trained spider yeah um. They also but, uh, got that cat
1: to do a lot of of pretty interesting and entertaining things. As I was watching it again, I I watched it again today, and 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 they, they you know, they they really got some good good action out of that cat with its paws and reaching around doors and and all of its hissing. And
0: um, Jack Arnold describes that in one interview. They had it was a very well trained cat. It had a professional trainer and everything, and it all had to do with treats and. Putting treats behind the dollhouse, so it kind of starts pushing it off. But it was a, uh, it was it was very well. Tra- it, you know, its trainer was on the set and you know could snap its fingers or do these little commands.
1: I have a question for you uh, about the differences and maybe other stuff that's in the novel. Watching it again today, I was struck, and I had these feelings last week too. Uh, I find the character of the brother interesting from. Um, from a more of a film noir or sort of crime novel angle, there's all these sort of... I mean, the, the movie doesn't make anything of it, but it's interesting to me that they're on the brother's boat at the beginning, that he's working for his brother who sort of promptly, you know, at the sort of drop of a hat, says, I can't give you any more paychecks. And he's also pretty quick to move in with the wife and get her out of the house. And, you know, you, you I kept I kept wondering if there's more to that story and if the brother... In the novel is there a brother in the novel and is he similarly- There is and it's all
0: it's all laid out just as it is in the film and there's there's uh to in my memory no more revelation about him and the and the wife but you can you know you can you can infer that I guess this this is the same as you would in, in the film that when they when they run off together it's it's you know it's the final blow to Scott's you know masculinity Uh, although in the in the in the movie uh he never knows right when she's left and he he can't know which is you know maybe one of the things that allows him to be more hopeful about his the future of his existence Mm. um he just you know just kind of walks off but yeah that is you know that is interesting but it's all it's all in the book just as it is in the film um where he works for him loses his job it's his boat uh he's on the boat with his brother instead of his wife oh okay um and uh but the brother isn't isn't exposed to the to the to the radiation and i guess that's the other sci-fi part of the book that um and and the movie you know that scott's been exposed to some kind of insecticide or some other kind of chemical, and that gets activated by this mysterious mist, which everyone takes to be radioactive at some point. Well,
1: th- yeah, and the, the opening credits of the film sort of, you're, it, it seems like you're watching an atomic bomb or some kind of a mushroom cloud. Um, but, but but it's true that once the movie actually starts, they never talk about it as anything else other than a mist. Right. Um, and, the, and also the whole insecticide thing is really only talked about at the doctor's office we never actually see that incident is there more made of that in the book
0: no it's just as it's laid out just as huh. simply in the book and I think that's to underscore the fact that you know that's that's right. not that's not his, the biggest problem he has you know yeah, it's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just something that happens but it's something right. that's often pointed to when at least when discussing the movie and People are talking about the whole cycle of you know, right. atomic atomic fear sci-fi movies of the yeah. of the fifties that are either you know worried about uh, nuclear weapons or you know the Cold War in general or the communist menace and how that is a threat to you know typical American values and society and and the individual. Um, but I, I think both. Matheson's book and the movie, and we should you know mention that he wrote the screenplay for the film. Yeah, uh, and did a really nice job adapting it. His first screenplay. Um, that uh, it comes from a I th- I think that it, 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 it's a sci-fi novel to be sure, but it's also coming from another literary tradition that's coming out at the time where you know books about uh, you know the the dissatisfaction of the of the working man or the, or the, the white collar worker with the rat race and with living in suburbia. It's a post-war kind of malaise. So, uh, man in the gray flannel suit, which is based on a book by Sloan Wilson. Um, you know, there's a couple other movies or, and movies based on books. Uh, there's a Martin Ritt film called no down payment, which was based yeah. on a novel. Uh, there's a movie with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward based on John O'Hara stories called From the Terrace, and then there are books from the era that aren't turned into movies for you know several years later, uh, like uh, John Updike's Rabbit Run and Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, and and I think Shrinking Man really, you know, even though it has this fantastic premise belongs just as much to that literary tradition. And they're all kind of, they're all books that are, you know, that are uh, riding a trend of sexual frankness too, where mm. sex is kind of openly talked about. And the movies, you know, the movie versions aren't as explicit, but they, you know, they flirt with the censors a little bit by, um, you know, by hinting at, and, and and being a little more explicit about sex than any other movies at the time yeah and uh and so i think you know that's a, a part of where matheson's coming from even though he's almost always as a writer working in a working in that kind of tradition and i think um Duel, which i think i think is that based on one of his short stories i think it is i think it and is, and i know yeah. he wrote the script but i think it i think it i think it definitely belongs to that to that tradition yeah um you know it's and dennis weaver in the in the movie is you know completely mm-hmm. it's all about his you know how his masculinity is threatened
1: absolutely it might even be right. more
0: explicit than in than in shrinking man
1: right yeah, by it's threatened by a much bigger truck
0: <laughs> yeah than,
1: than his vehicle um there's a fun you know i was thinking about this there's this, this uh, there's an interesting trope about doctors in these movies, um, in that um, they're, they're always completely sort of condescending and skeptical about what the protagonist is going through when they first arrive on the scene. And it's an interesting uh, that th- that's the role that doctors have in all of these types of uh, sci-fi or horror movies. Uh, and it seems like a, it's an interesting, it almost seems like a deliberate undermining of the medical profession in a way um you, you know it, because you're as an audience member you're coming into this movie and you know it's called the incredible shrinking man so you know that there's really something going on but there's always the scene with the doctor at the beginning saying i think you know i'm pretty sure you're not shrinking you know <laughs> and then well, it's even a, you know, when they mean? do
0: figure out what his problem is they're completely ineffectual yeah they can't do anything and they're not and they don't really care right um and that's 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 definitely there in the movie, but in the book, it's even more explicit in in that Scott and his wife, who you know are, are middle class but don't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. are are faced with the they have to pay for all the special tests mm-hmm. he has to go through, and it yeah. really you know it really uh, messes with their finances. And when he loses his job, he's got to basically sell out at uh, you know to the media. And become a, yeah. become a media celebrity, and that happens in the movie too, uh, yes. in the uh, in the book, uh, the moment he realizes his marriage is completely over, and 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 that he's kind of ruined it with his with his rage, is he suggests to his wife, well, why don't I put myself in a freak show, and uh, he and she just kind of shrugs it off and brushes it off. She's trying to hold it together. And he starts, you know, he erupts in rage at her for ignoring him and, you know, and and not, you no, know, not taking his his ideas seriously. And you know, he's just trying to protect them, and he needs to bring money into the family. And she says, uh, "Stop squeaking at me," <laughs> because <laughs> at that point he's he's shorter than an infant, yeah. and uh, and that's. Uh, uh, shortly after that he winds up in the basement. It's not a, by the way, it's not a cat attack in the book that leads him to the basement. It's a, a sparrow on the lawn. Oh that that drives him down there. Uh, he gets attacked by a bird.
1: Well, and, and you know, I think we should spend some time talking about the visual effects in this movie and how effective they are because to me, even when they when you see technical imperfections with them, they're so well shot uh, they they're so well designed the way that they're presented the way that they help tell the story and the you know the way that the, the the way that elements within the frame are placed that they're they're just insanely entertaining they're all they're you know obviously this film has feels like it has a limited budget but it feels like every dollar they had was spent wisely as far as what props they needed to build you know and what sort of um, games they could figure out to play with forced perspective but then also all of these kind of optical effects that come in in the second half of the film and they're they're all just incredibly entertaining and really effective and, and so that you're easily able to sort of overlook some of the sort of primitive you know technical elements of the effects you know in the way that his outline isn't always complete he sometimes seems a little bit transparent when he's you know yeah. be, being like dissolved into another image and um, yeah, but I sometimes just think the, it's sc- terrific.
0: Sometimes the scale isn't quite right, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, or even varies within a sequence. But the editing is really uh, swift and gets to the point of of the sequences before you can really dwell on it too much. Uh, I just I I think there are so many things that they're doing too. There's you know forced perspective where actors are placed. You know who are, are are supposed to be of different scale at different parts of the set, but the, but the, the the depth of focus and the whatever lens they're using gives us a kind of optical effect. Sometimes he's using actual little people to double mm-hmm. uh, in long shots for Scott and Clarice, um, and and then as you say, sometimes it's it's optical shots and oversized props, which I think are the best. Yeah, the best things in the film, especially the whole set that's meant to evoke a dollhouse furniture and dollhouse living is is really great, and that's a wonderful, you know, very witty moment of the film when you know you 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 see Scott and you you maybe allowed to think for a minute that oh things have returned to normal and you realize <laughs> right. where he's living, um, which is not something the 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 book could pull off because the book is uh, all nonlinear. Um and uh much in the way the film devotes to Scott's surviving the basement. I think it's almost the whole second half of the film where after he's in the basement and yeah. has to kind of deal with that. The the book kind of takes his living in the basement and and his extended continuing battles with the spider before he's finally triumphant over it. Um you have you have those as episodes and then you go back you know every other chapter to you know the story of before he got to the basement and there the within the within the chapters there are headings that show his uh i guess dissolution uh so it starts with 72 inches and then 68 mm. inches and yeah then you're you're down to uh single digits at one point
1: Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's a real testament to uh, the whole sort of effects and design team, and I'm assuming Jack Arnold. You know that they didn't just decide, okay, we're going to do this film using this kind of an effect. They really just grabbed everything they could, and like you say, they 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 tried everything. It seems like, and they and they and they tried everything fairly successfully. Um, You know, and and, and, and I and I think that that probably helps. That every time you think, oh, this is how they're going to do this in this film. Suddenly, they throw something else at you, and so you're sort of constantly like they're always one step ahead of you with the special effects that they've come up with some other cool way to represent what seems like an impossible scene to shoot.
0: Yeah, and you're absolutely right about it being you know a low budget film. You know, Universal was already in even you know in the '50s, although their kind of reputation was rising. Um, you know, was still you know one of the uh, Less prestigious of the of the major studios in Hollywood, and and they had um, big low budget units, um, and they were known for sci-fi and horror films, especially in the '50s. And they had a, a a lot of them. Incredible Shrinking Man is easily the best, and represents a kind of culmination of the people who had been working on them, especially Jack Arnold. And you know we can we can talk more about him. Um, well, let no, me just ask
1: you though when, when did it get cemented in your head this is one of your favorite films was this like as a child it hit you right away and then you've carried that the rest of your life or did you re-examine it in later years and realize this was really something special for
0: you I, th- I think it came when uh, I started reading more of the literature of the period and reading John Updike and Richard Yates and uh, other books and, and, and saw how that you know related to uh you know if not directly my own life you know as someone who's you know um you know getting older and 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 maybe a little more reflective and a little more philosophical um then you know then it's kind of uh then the movie's reflection on American culture in general, and you know what this what you know where is this movie coming from? It's coming from a very specific place and time uh, where you know these kind of traditions of masculinity are being challenged. You know, um, and and I think seeing that you know seeing it again years after having seen it came from Hollywood, and after watching it as a kid and maybe thinking it was a guilty pleasure. Uh, seeing how well crafted it is when I mean, we've talked about that yeah um and uh and how uh rigorous it is in terms of storytelling it's a it's a it starts off as a kind of like a nightmare mm-hmm. uh of the American dream gone haywire and then it becomes in the whole second half of you know a, a story of survival and then emerges as this kind of hopeful um existential uh, vision.
1: Well, I you know, a film that occurred to me while I was watching it uh, this year um, uh, that I feel has a similar ending, but maybe you can say how you feel about how similar those endings are, is the Ray Moland film, X, The Man with the X-ray Eyes, where also by the end of the film, he is is, is now on this sort of psychedelic spiritual existential journey into previously unknown realms of of i guess vision in his case he's sort of seeing through the universe and and, and i and i got a very similar feeling you know about the journey that scott is on at the the very end of of this film
0: but it's a bummer right he has to destroy himself at the end he has to stop what he's doing and he he's
1: he, does, does he, he pluck his own in?
0: plucks his own eyes out? Yeah, and yeah. A, and I think, at one but he still, up, but
1: he still sees after that. It doesn't help, and so I do think that the I, I, it is a bummer. But I feel like it's the same kind of a bummer that I feel about Incredible Shrinking Man. Not so much a bummer, but it's scary, and yeah, especially yeah. as a kid, it's like it's sort of terrifying to know sure. that th- these guys are going into worlds that nobody has apparently okay. ever you know been to before. And I do been, think that it's. This,
0: it, it's yeah, been a while ahead. since I've seen it and I think that could you know that I think the way you discuss it now um, makes sense and and certainly ties into Roger Corman and what he was just about to go through with his own psychedelia experiments and um, psychedelic experiments with LSD and and uh, and that and that resulted in the trip so um, you know there is yeah I guess there is something scary about it but it's um, certainly I, I mean it's scary but he still exists and he's uh, excited and hopeful about his own future and about what he's going to encounter both in the yeah. in the book and the movie
1: he is definitely more hopeful than Ray is at the end of yeah. X the man with the X ray eyes um, so so as 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 an influence this film you know obviously there is that Lily Tomlin incredible shrinking woman.
0: Yeah um, which which I think in the, if you watch the film it says you know inspired by or based mm-hmm. on a novel by Richard Matheson so Universal still owned the rights to it and um you know and that and that came out of it and, and I think I, I don't think the intention was ever to do a a straight or even a a, a spoof of the incredible shrinking man I think it was just yeah. Lily Tomlin wanting to put her own kind of spin on it and that movie's written by her partner Jane Wagner and, mm-hmm. and, and I, and if I just watched it again a couple years ago and I think what ultimately emerges isn't, isn't really a kind of feminist vision, but it's, it's a kind of anti-consumerist Yeah. satire, uh, you know, yeah. really is making fun of household products and, and, you know, and uh, television commercials and advertising and,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and
0: that's. I don't Is that, a, is it, maybe that's an easier target? Um, but you and know, it was, a, and when
1: it, right. And it was sort of, it, it fell in line with some other comedies around that time. Like Fun with Dick and Jane comes to mind yeah,
0: with, yeah. George Siegel and, uh, and then it literally de- devolves into a, you know, her riding around on a gorilla. Yeah. You know, around a lab. But, uh, well, right. first you have to, you have to think about, uh, miniaturization and, and in the movies, um,
1: you know or or fantastic or, voyage sure. well if you know
0: you won't even want to go back to the silent era in terms of you know pitting humans becoming mm. miniature in their scale there's the there's the movie of the lost world right uh, arthur conan doyle sir. which i've uh, if you watch this i just watched this interview with jack arnold where in the mid 80s he he wants to do a remake of it um which doesn't really happen um but uh that's that's a silent error and then you know and then that leads to king kong you know and willis o'brien and his special effects and you know the idea of kong being a giant and the humans in relation to it are 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 miniaturized then but um in terms of you know mad scientists shrinking people um the, the two things that come to mind are the sequence in bride of frankenstein where dr pretorius reveals what what he's been up to before he introduces himself to frankenstein He's mm-hmm. got, he's got all those little yes, that's creatures right. and, then, yeah, yeah. and they're not people have been miniaturized though. They're like, they're some other kind of odd, you know, Frankenstein like creation that he's made where they're, you know, they're, they, they, don't, they don't behave like humans. They're, they're, there's something, you know, more animal about them. But, uh, well, but,
1: and, but I think that, you know, that the whole mad scientist thing is one, is one genre. But I think that this, where it's more of a, you know, due to unforeseen circumstances, somebody is suddenly transformed, either, you know, into an incredibly large creature or right. a shrinking man. Like the the thing that the thing that I keep thinking about, and obviously since I, I know Stephen King, thought of uh, Richard Matheson as a huge, you know, influence, and. He, He's got that, I think it's a novel, maybe it's maybe it's a novella, and I can't remember if he wrote it under his own name, or it's one of those Richard Bachman novels. He's got this novel called Thinner, which also got turned into a movie, which is very close to this. I mean, it's got more of a, it's got this angle, which is more like that uh, Sam Raimi movie. with the, There's a gypsy who has, who our protagonist has wronged in some way, and she casts a... A spell or a curse on the, this guy he eats a pie and starts losing weight he's a heavy set guy and then he can't stop losing weight and then you know eventually he's going to
0: well the other uh, the other king influence that i was thinking about um and I, and I and i thought about this today is the menace of the mundane and so an mm-hmm. in incredible shrinking man scott's trapped yeah. in his basement and and think about that in relation to cujo you know it's just this woman and yeah. her kid trapped in their car and yep. you know they they can't get out of it because their their once friendly household dog is now outside but they but they're, you know they're in the car and then Gerald's game is a woman chained up in her house uh, oh, yeah. who you know and and it just becomes the kind of the natural surroundings and the and the circumstances of her entrapment lead to things that you know were, were part of her life every day now coming and posing a, a threat to her, to her existence.
1: Yeah. So so we've been showing a bunch of Jack Arnold uh, for the last few years at uh, at the Wisconsin Film Festival, and so talk to me a little more about.
0: Well, about Jack so, Arnold. I mean, the reason we're we're offering Shrinking Man and Silent Running this week is because they were both part of the Wisconsin film festival selection, uh, earlier this year, the, the whole festival was canceled. Um, but they were both included in the festival for different reasons. And I should say that, you know, and, and I will have mentioned this in the introduction, uh, that, uh, these two screenings are being supported by the Wisconsin science festival, which is going on right now. Now, uh, our Wisconsin film festival selection for this year, we included silent running because it presented a kind of natural double feature with spaceship Earth, which is a documentary about uh, biosphere 2 and how they were inspired by silent running at least that's that's a part of it. but um, incredible shrinking man was included um, because uh, we wanted to both uh, showcase uh, Jack Arnold and in particular his 3d work you know we've been we've been showing, um, 3D movies fairly regularly at the Cinematheque and at, at the Film Festival. Last year, we had a huge success with what is probably Jack Arnold's best-known film, if not his best movie. I think Shrinking Man's his best movie. But his best-known film is Creature from the Black Lagoon, Yeah. You know, which is one of the best-known 3D films, too. That was a huge hit. Yeah. Uh, he made a sequel that he directed called Revenge of the Creature the next year, which was also in 3D, which we showed at the Cinematheque last fall, but really his best, his two best 3D films are, uh, one is a sci-fi movie, a very good one written by Ray Bradbury called It Came From Outer Space, which we had included in the film festival this year um, because we wanted to show, showcase the restoration work done by Bob Fermanek and the 3D Film Archive. But my favorite Arnold film after Shrinking Man is a 3D noir called The Glass Web, which stars oh, yeah. uh, John Forsyth and Evergy Robinson and is set in the world of television, um, a, a kind of early form of reality television, as it turns out. And um, oh, it's a terrific movie, a wonderful film. Yeah. And Arnold is really... Uh, all of these films I mentioned, by the way, were made at Universal Pictures, uh, all had you know medium to low budgets. Um, he's rarely working with stars. I think of all those films... Uh, Edward G. Robinson is is the biggest star that, and, and uh, the same year, um, Shrinking Man comes out. Man in the Shadow is released, and that has Orson Welles and Jeff Chandler. He wanted to, he wanted to work with bigger stars, and that meant you know him kind of moving away from Universal. But it really represents the the, the peak of his work because he had he had this studio system in, in place, and so Universal, in fact, remains. A kind of old-fashioned, fashion classic studio system with actors under contract and the same technicians working on every film that the other studios maintained in the 30s and 40s and in the silent era. But by the 50s, are, are starting to break up, and you know, so a lot of the people who you know worked at Paramount or worked at MGM or Warner Brothers for years are now, you know, uh, to become independents in their They float around between the studios. But Universal keeps its contract players in place, and some stars come out of them. In fact, I think uh, Clint Eastwood's first two movies are Revenge of the Creature and Tarantula, both directed by Jack Arnold. He's part of that system. Grant Williams is part of that uh, system, and he plays uh, Scott Carey, (laughs) and... uh, didn't have much of a career. He's a very he's a very good everyman in this film. In fact, I think it helps that it's not a star. I think it helps yeah. that it's this kind of blandly handsome guy who could be anybody. Um, mm-hmm. But Albert Zugsmith, as I mentioned earlier, is the producer of Incredible Shrinking Man. And the, the, the other major director that Zugsmith works with frequently in the 50s is uh, Douglas Sirk. And Grant Williams has a small part in... The previous Zugsmith production, which is Cirque's "Written on the Wind," mm. uh, with Robert Stack and Rock Hudson, Dorothy Malone, and Lauren Bacall. Uh, Zugsmith is an interesting guy in himself, you know, the producer. He's another, you know, had a big part in making sure "Shrinking Man" got made. But he's, you know, he's kind of a more thought of as a trashy figure, um, because after "Shrinking Man." He goes to work on a series of kind of sexploitation films starring Mamie Van Doren, the first of which is High School Confidential, directed by Jack Arnold, and that's the best of them. But it's a very yeah. campy, very campy movie. And then, you know, um, uh, sex kittens go to college, uh, and Zugsmith becomes a director himself. He stops producing and becomes a producer-director. Uh, college Confidential, movies like that that are, you know, they're kind of fun, campy movies, but... They're, um, they're, they're pretty low brow, And then Zug Smith directs one, I think, extraordinary movie in 1962 called uh, Confessions of an Opium Eater, starring Vincent Price. And it's based on, uh, I think, a 19th century book by Thomas De Quincey. And it's a very strange, very surreal film, made it allied artists on these really cheap, but evocative sets it's a, it's one of the most dreamlike movies i've ever seen so you know a little tip of the hat to zugsmith and you know and he was the person who hired orson wells to co-star and direct touch in touch of evil yeah so uh he's 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 not a not an unimportant figure in the history of cinema by any means he's 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 a major guy just for his, his Cirque movies, uh, his Jack Arnold movies, and Touch of Evil and Confessions of an Opium Eater. He's, he's worth more than a mention in uh, in the histories of, of cinema.
1: So um, I, I was while you were talking, I was also thinking um, I've, I've gotten a chance to see Silent Running a few times in the last few weeks, um, and I did another podcast about that, which we'll probably share out with, with our Cinematech audience. Absolutely. Or, uh, but um, it, it strikes me that even though these two films were not programmed at this year's festival, sort of as companion pieces to each other, uh, they do have something, I think, pretty important in common. And that is uh, their reliance on truly wonderful practical effects, props um, uh, as you said probably the best part of of the special effects in Shrinking Man are the are the oversized furniture and you know and the, and that you know you can tell that somebody's actually sitting on this chair and it's a real chair or walking past something that's an actual object and that I found myself thinking of A Lot during Silent Running which is filled with all of these sort of mechanical and first of all there are these amazing drones uh, in, in the film, which, uh, uh, even when you find out if you do some research as to how these drones were created and what's behind them, it doesn't actually decrease the magic of how wonderful they are in the film and how, you know, how they really feel like, oh, these are real kind of robots who are wandering around and moving around. Um, but there's also these great sort of, um, little nuclear bombs that you can carry around in your hand and they you have a key you have to twist. It's just full of all this great tactile stuff that you don't get a lot of anymore in any kind of special effects oriented film, now that we're you know, completely beholden to CGI. Um, it's, it, and, and, and also, the other thing about Silent Running that, that, that makes it a nice companion with Shrinking Man is it was also an insanely low budget film. That film was shot with like a, a million dollar budget and it looks like it had to have cost you know 20 times that at, at even in, even by 1972 standards. and um, and it's and it's, um, it's the sort of imagination and creativity that these filmmakers had when it came to coming up with things uh, to, to, to sell their sort of fantastical concepts. So the, I think it is a nice double.
0: The two thoughts I have about silent running and its relationship to... Incredible Shrinking Man. Well, the fir- the first one is one that you just made me realize, which is uh, in in a way it's kind of the inverse of Shrinking Man. Um, you mentioned the the wonderful effects, and it's and it's no surprise how great the effects are in Silent Running because it's directed by Douglas Trumbull, um, special effects master who you know did so many of the great effects in 2001: A Space Odyssey just a few years prior, but and uh, in it's in in the way it kind of stands opposite to Incredible Shrinking Man is uh, the incredible miniature effects in the film, uh, where uh, you know, we're in Incredible Shrinking Man we have gigantic pencil props. In Silent Running, we have small but completely believable and evocative spaceships, um, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, picture pictures of the of the of the space vehicle um, you know, seen at a distance and I don't know, I'm, I'm 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 probably not saying it very well, but uh really great miniature props. Um and the other thing is is kind of how the two characters the two main characters, the Bruce Dern and Silent Runner mm-hmm. and, and Scott Carey, played by Grant Williams, uh they're they're both facing a kind of existential loneliness. But almost everything uh, Scott Carey is facing is inner-directed and directed at his own self and and his own kind of personal existence and and what that means and everything that uh, what's his name Lowell Freeman right Lowell Freeman yeah Bruce Dern is facing is has the greatest um, actually I think it's Freeman Lowell Freeman Lowell right. You know, everything he's facing has the greatest consequences and the ultimate consequences to all of humanity. Right. Uh, the, 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 the extinction of all natural plant life and all yeah. organic life aside from human beings. Uh, but also,
1: planet. the other thing is they're also both flawed characters at the start of these films. And in Angry some ways... And violent angry and violent and in some ways they become better people as their as their crisis becomes uh deeper and more profound and they're also both off on these journeys into the unknown
0: in their own yeah. way yeah both and both at the end resolved in their in their decisions mm-hmm. about their about their fate um and i guess i guess it makes sense that one of them is a you know because it's is it, because it's sacrificial is a is a suicide um but somehow not it's not a it's not a depressing film silent running i think it's it's you know it's, it's scary <laughs> but it's but it at least it at least you know depressing and may- maybe you know in its in its ultimate vision of humanity but you know the i think what it wants to say is that you know there 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 are still some good impulses out there and there are still some dignity and, and decent human behavior that, that is worth focusing on and worth learning from. Um, and, you know, and you could say the same about Incredible Shrinking Man in terms of thinking about our own relation to our environment uh, and about how there are, there are possibilities there even as we age and as we become shrunk in our relationship to the universe, you know, whether that's, you know, politics or how our own neighborhoods are run or anything, I think, you know, what what ultimately is learned is that you know there's there there's possibility and uh, and there's reason to be excited about it. I guess.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you around to help me see the bright side of things and the bright side of these films. <laughs>
0: yeah it's uh you know i i I would have every reason to view them as depressing and they're certainly about loneliness i mean for the you know great part of their running time it's about you know how isolated these guys are from everything and everybody yep um but um how they change and how they come to fit into their respective universes (laughs)